we're going to start with the, uh, the simple thing. Hopefully, you caught what we're talking about this morning. Did, did you miss that in those 26 verses? Because it repeated every single verse. For the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. If you missed that, I promise there's a remedial English class we can go back and catch. One of my graduates over here, you, you guys could probably teach that, right? About how to notice the point in a repeating passage. But the whole point of this is to see who God is. And for some of us, I, I don't know about you, but I grew up through some of the worship wars, right? Where it was the organ or nothing. And then it was choruses or nothing. And one of the things I was told about when I served at a Presbyterian church was that our congregation was tired of 7-Elevens. And I was confused. Coming from Oklahoma, I'm like, the convenience store, what is your problem, lady? But that wasn't what she was talking about. She was talking about songs that repeated the chorus seven times and then 11 more for good measure. The Babylon Bee actually made fun of it a couple weeks ago with Chris Tomlin. They put an op-ed. And the whole thing is, I'm Chris Tomlin. That's who I am. And that's 12 lines of what he's written. And it's to poke fun at him and to make a joke. But many times we think that originated with modern emotive worship, where we're going to sing things. Like one of my favorite articles they did was talking about a local youth group who'd been stuck singing, I could sing of your love forever for 33 years. And they finally found out, it says one of the parents was tired of waiting and went in to find her teenage son was 33. She's like, well, I guess it should have clued me in when you sing, I could sing of your love forever over and over. But in the Psalms, we have this because God knows something about the human condition that we might miss. Like for your random biological fact today, anybody heard about having a memory like a goldfish? You heard someone say that? Anybody know how long they say a memory that's like a goldfish lasts? Three seconds. That is exactly what they say, but you know what? It's absolutely false. I was horrified to learn that because I've used that to blame things for years. Like as a youth pastor, when I tell my wife, hey, baby, I'm leaving. We've got this retreat on Friday. She's like, you never told me about this. And I'm like, oh, my bad. I forgot two minutes after I walked out. You can't use that as an excuse, but God knows as his people, we have a habit of forgetting things like that goldfish. And sure, it's not true, but we often want it to be true, and we make excuses as to why it's true. And that's why we have a passage like Psalm 136. This is actually one of the most well-known hymns of praise to God from the Old Testament. It's, it's actually the only thing mentioned in corporate worship from the Old Testament that you see multiple times. In Ezra, the Israelites are back. They're dedicating the foundation of the temple. It's been laid. In Ezra 3, you know what they mention? Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. In the book of 2 Chronicles, it touches on it. As the temple is being dedicated, the fire of the Lord falls, and they see his glory come. And what do his people sing? For his steadfast love endures forever. We can say it, we can think it, but do we believe it? That's the question. And that's why we're here this morning, because God's faithfulness should never be in question, yet we do. Because just like the infamous false memory of a goldfish, two seconds after God has done something for us, 
we forget and we move on because we forget. Because I don't know about you, but I have hated on the ancient Israelites a lot. And this text actually is one of those that makes me go, y'all are just dumb. Get it to, I mean, come on, get it to, Have you ever been there? You're in the book of Exodus. And you see what God is doing. And it mentions that in our text. And we'll get there. Here's your preview. The Israelites see God. He delivers them in a myriad ways. He parts the Red Sea. Two seconds later, what are the Israelites doing? Why did you bring us out here to die, God? Really? He's leading you in a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. He parted an ocean. And why are we here to die, God? He hasn't been faithful enough yet. I look at that and I'm like, man, they were morons. I would not. Wait. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Maybe a little too close to home. Because I look at that and I wonder what and why I forget God's faithfulness. It can be because things are good. It can be because things are bad. But we have a habit of completely forgetting the faithful love of the Lord. And that's why God gave us things like Psalm 136. And as I said, if you missed it, there's two key concepts in this psalm. Anybody care to guess what they are? The first one is the first line. It's give thanks to the God of gods. It's gratitude. And I know we're not approaching Thanksgiving, but I'm preaching a passage about thankfulness and gratitude. The second key concept is God's faithful love. That word, faithful love, for those who grew up with the King James, maybe you're more familiar with the idea of loving kindness. The NIV just calls it love. The ESV talks about the steadfast love. But all of those phrases are terminology for the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed is covenantal, faithful love or true love in another modern English translation. Marital devotion gives us kind of an analogy to that, but said was God's love for his people in spite of themselves. And I say in spite because, hi, I'm a person. I have issues, and I forget what God has done, and I thank him for the fact that his unfailing love doesn't stop. But it said is all about covenant. So as you hear it, it's the faithful, the steadfast, the unfailing. Or to quote Sally Lloyd-Jones from the Jesus Storybook Bible, it's God's never giving up, always and forever love. It's what will never let you go. And no, I'm not quoting Rick Astley this morning, but it's close to getting Rickrolled, never going to let you down, you know. No, but that's who God is. And the supreme reality of this psalm is it's telling us in no uncertain terms, exactly who God is. Did you see that? Because that's what the psalm is about at its core. It is about who God is. And that's the key point here. First thing I want you to see as you fill in your blanks, taking time to reflect on who God is instills an attitude of gratitude. Taking time to reflect on who God is instills an attitude of gratitude. Because when I stop 
And when I look at who he is and what he has done for me, I have no choice but to be thankful. In fact, this morning, we're going to take a brief example. I want everybody to just breathe in. Just go, and let it back out. You know what that tells you? The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever because you're not getting what you deserve, but rather have breath in your lungs and life to live. That's the most fundamental part of it. If we got what we deserve, and Jay mentioned it last week, it's one of my favorite Reformed theologians, the rapper Lecrae. Uh, He said, if we fought for our rights, we'd be in hell tonight because I don't get what I deserve because of God's unfailing, steadfast, always and forever love. You have breath in your lungs. The result is give thanks to God. Think about it again. Do you have food on your table? Give thanks to God because he has provided. All of the things we take for granted. That's why we have to stop, step back, and look at who he is. And no matter what, if we look at all, we see God and are grateful for what he has done in our lives. And that's the psalmist. That first two, three verses is talking about who he is. Listen to it again. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His faithful love endures forever. It's not just telling us why we're thankful. It's defining God as who he is. He is unfailing and steadfast in his love. He is the God of gods. In Hebrew, that's the Elohecha Elohim, which I just bored you with educational stuff, I know. But it's clear in the text. If you notice in the English, it capitalizes the first God and not God's. It's making a point that there is one God who sits above it all. The Lord of Lords is the same thing. It talks about him there is the Adon Adonai. He's the Lord above all the other lords. It's making a differentiation to a term which we would call the preeminence of God. And as I mentioned to the Israelites in Exodus, this is going to be dripping with a lot of historical references because Exodus shows us the preeminence of God. Do you know that every single one of those plagues wasn't just purposeful. It was to teach us something that we completely miss. Do you know who the Egyptians worshipped? There were a lot of them. Millions of gods, right? Each of those gods had their own specific area that they were supposed to be all-powerful over. When you walk through the plagues and compare them with the Egyptian pantheon, you know what our God said before he let his people out? He said, your gods are nothing. And he showed them in no uncertain terms that every god they worshipped wasn't worthy of the breath in their lungs. We miss it. We see frogs, we see flies, boils and hail, lack of light, the water turning to blood, and we're like, okay, that's, that's really kind of weird, God, but whatever. He's making a point. He is preeminent above all creation. He is above everything else. The terms in theology, his omniscience, he knows it all. His omnipotence, he is all-powerful and can do it. Which my favorite question I was asked in college If God is all-powerful, could he make a rock so big he couldn't move it? Lovely circular argument. Well, he's all-powerful, so he could do something that he couldn't do. But the logic defeats itself. Because he is all-powerful, 
Yeah, he could make a rock so big he couldn't move it, but by default, because he made it, he can move it. That is our God, and his love endures forever. Now I want you to take a moment to think about places you've seen. Because first we start with his preeminence. The psalmist just defined for us who God is. But there are other ways we see his glory and his goodness. The first one is in creation. And in fact, that's our second point. God's creativity shows us who he is and how much he loves us. Think about creation. Have you been in a place that has totally taken your breath away? You just stood there staring in awe. I remember the first time I saw the mountains. I'm a boy from Oklahoma. And for the record, just like Kansas, what we call mountains is a little hill over here yonder. And people from Colorado and other states laugh at us. They're like, that's, that's not a mountain. You guys, you need to see a real mountain. I thought I knew the glory of God. I love the wheat fields rolling, that golden wonder. But there's something awe-inspiring that moment you wake up, you look out your window, and you see that huge mountain. And the knowledge that our God pushed those from the earth and made them for us to see. His creativity shows us that love. You see the next verses focus there. Verse 4, he alone does great wonders. Verse 5, he made the heavens skillfully. He spread the land on the waters. He made the great lights, the sun to rule by day, and the moon and the stars to rule by night. Everything God made in that creative fit as he painted the galaxies was for you to see who he is. The theological term is natural revelation. We see God in what he has made, but we don't know him in that, but we're struck with wonder. Have you ever stared out at the Grand Canyon and just been like, wow? Sat and listened to the ocean waves, that rhythmic rolling in and out. Enjoyed the breeze passing across your face. God's steadfast love dictated that you would see those. You would enjoy those because he made them for you. Did you ever think about that fact? God dug the Grand Canyon out of the earth for you, for you to see him. He kicked the mountains up out of the sea for us to see his glory. Every inch of creation was made for you. Now, this is not some self-centered gospel moment where you're like, yeah, God loved me so much, he made everything. True. But you have to nuance it enough to understand that he did that for every single person who he made in his image. We have that infinite value because we're made in his image and we are worth the life of his son. But he made all of this to show us who he is. And every inch of creation declares his love in fact, one of my favorite passages is Isaiah. Because out here in Kansas, we get the chance to look up at the stars and be struck with awe. Because if the lights are out, you can see that heavenly host spread from wall to wall in that curtain of space. In Isaiah, it tells us, look up and see who created these. He brings out the stars by number and he calls each of them by name. Because of his great power and his great strength, not one of them is missing. 
Do you hear the care God has for creation? Or maybe Jesus' words are better. He says that God knows every sparrow and when it falls. And yet how much more does he care for you? Or to kick it to another psalm. Who am I, a son of man, that you would look after me? You made me a little less than yourself and crowned me with glory and honor. You made me ruler over the works of your hands and you put everything under my feet. All the sheep and the oxen as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name in all of the earth. Creation was made to declare the glory of God and show us who he is because it's a reflection of the creativity of our God. He made it unique. He made it special. And he did the same thing for us to show us who he is. Now I'm going to go a little deeper into church history. One of the church fathers, Athanasius, who uh, if, you're, if you're a fan of the Lutheran satire videos, you ought to watch one about the Trinity. It's good stuff anyway. You've got two funny little redheaded cartoon men talking about, but Patrick, don't forget we're common men. You must use simple terms. And so he's explaining the Trinity. And he's like, well, the Trinity's like water. No, Patrick, that's modalism. And they go through all these heresies throughout. And it's, it's hilarious to me because I studied church history. I have degrees to say I know something about them. But they parse it all out. And then at the end of the video, he quotes the Athanasian Creed, which defines the Trinity. The Trinity is a mystery. And God, one and three and three and one. All of that goes to say this. The maker of the world and creation, with God its maker. The first fact you must grasp is this. The renewal of creation has been wrought by the self-same word who made it in the beginning. There's thus no inconsistency between creation and salvation. For the one Father has employed the same agent for both works, affecting the salvation of the world through the same word who first made it. Now take a minute and let that soak in. It's, it's deep stuff and you could dive in there. But God the Father, how was creation started? John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Through him everything was made. And then on a cross, the very Word of God suffered and died to take your place. That self-same word redeems us just as it made us. It made us first. We fell and it makes us whole. And that brings me to the next point that I want you to get. I'm going to camp here for a while, so hang tight with me. God's faithfulness in the past demonstrates that he will continue to be faithful today. Hear that again, because this is what it all comes back to. God's faithfulness in the past demonstrates that he will continue to be faithful today. Now, I mentioned the Israelites and their total lack of faith every two seconds, where, yes, God, you've provided us with great things. Oh, look, food from heaven. Woo! But it's not meat, God. We want meat. Okay, here's some quail. And they're like, man, we're tired of quail. Can we get something new? You, you, you ever read Exodus and listen to how whiny they are? It sometimes sounds like a toddler who, well, I don't want chicken nuggets. I want a chocolate milk. You can have chocolate milk after you eat your chicken nuggets, and you're negotiating with a terrorist. I mean, I, I, ha I have nine kids, y'all. I know what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm slightly professional. But man, 
the Israelites sound like a toddler whining throughout Exodus. And God brings it back to us. In verse 10, he starts with the final plague. He struck the firstborn of the Egyptians. His faithful love endures forever. And he brought Israel out from among them. His faithful love endures forever. With a strong hand and outstretched arm, his faithful love endures forever. He divided the Red Sea and led Israel through it. His faithful love endures forever. But he destroyed Pharaoh. He overthrew him and his army in the Red Sea because his faithful love endures forever. He led his people in the wilderness because his faithful love endures forever. All of these things throughout the Exodus, we have to be reminded that it's because God's faithful love endures forever. Because you're human. I'm human. Do you have a limit to this thing called patience? No? No, you're, you're obviously more sainted than I am. I should already know that. Because I'm a pretty horrible person, and my patience snaps, and my children get to see the, the wrath of their father, which does not bring about the godliness of men. But my patience hits a, hits a limit. I'm like, y'all, how many times have I said this? And you reiterate, dads, can you, you can relate, right? I've said it so many times, I can't say it again, but still you say it again. Now, take a step back from that moment in human parenting and think about God. If I was God, my patience would have been exhausted way before. You look through scripture, there are a couple of moments I deeply resonate with God, especially post-flood, people start getting evil again. He's like, I regret ever having made them. Have you seen that scripture? Have you thought that with your own children, or is that just me and the dirty heathen? I hope it's not just me. But God's patience doesn't fail. Think about the Israelites, all of these things they've seen. They get passed over. God sends his people away through the plagues. In fact, none of the first plagues even affected where they lived. They saw the Egyptians getting the wrath of God poured out on them. But they were untouched. And then finally it leads to the death of the firstborn in that last plague. And God gave his people a way out and through it. In fact, Passover is a mirror. And it's a shadow that shows us exactly who Jesus is. In fact, I'd go so far as to tell you, church, if you don't know your Old Testament, you don't fully appreciate Christ period. It's not boring. It's not outdated. It's not outmoded. It shows you the love of God. And people who don't recognize that do it to their own peril. Because did you know Jesus is talked about in Exodus? Have you ever seen the parallels? I'm passionate here. I'm also a sick puppy. I wrote my senior thesis on Leviticus and its implications for the modern believer. And I preached a series of messages to poor First Park Presbyterian Church in Hutch. Those saints suffered long. Long. Oh, it's a good thing I'm no longer that man. Because we, we can have fun. But Passover shows us Christ. In fact, it shows us Christ in ways we don't recognize today. Passover shows us Jesus. When God tells his people, sacrifice a lamb. But it's not just any lamb. It's a lamb that lives with their people for two weeks. 
Imagine for a minute, you take in a little lamb, it's your favorite, it's your happy little pet, and you're the parent with your kids knowing that eventually you're going to have to kill this lamb and spread its blood on the doorpost so that when it comes down, the wrath of God will pass over you. They do this, and then as they put it over the door, God's specific. God says to put it up the doorpost and across the lintel. Do you see what that makes, church? He does that, and he says it has to be a spotless lamb without blemish. Fast forward to the New Testament. You know when Jesus rolled up into Israel, there wasn't just that one moment of triumphal entry. There had been another that frames and references the whole picture. Because before that, in and around Jerusalem, there's not enough room for sheep to graze, to feed that many people and sacrifice that many lambs. So you know where those lambs come from in Israel? It came from this little town of David, known as Bethlehem. The house of bread in Hebrew, but Bethlehem in Aramaic is the house of meat. Why? Because there was a slope that was perfect for grazing. And that's where those royal shepherds raised spotless lambs. But it doesn't stop there. Fast forward to the nativity. The two most familiar stories in all of Scripture. We miss the point. The nativity. You know who God appears to first in the nativity? Shepherds, right? He shows up to shepherds in the fields watching their flocks by night. And those shepherds who are sitting there are called to go and see the king of the universe. Now, for us, we're like, man, that doesn't make sense. That's just so weird. Well, it's, it's God picking the lowly and the downtrodden. No, it's God picking the only people who would understand what he was doing. Because those royal shepherds raised sheep for sacrifice. Do you know how you get a perfect spotless lamb? It's all about the first two weeks of life. When that sheep is born, those shepherds wrap it in swaddling cloths. And they place it in a manger so that it doesn't hurt itself, giving it blemishes and defects. So these shepherds who roll up into the nativity see Jesus in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. Do you know what they saw? They saw Jesus as he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That Passover lamb whose blood covered so that we didn't have to. That is why the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever is so huge. Because every moment of history demonstrates God's faithful love. Right after the fall, what did God do? Adam and Eve literally just sinned. They broke everything. God kills animals to use their clothing. Or he kills animals to use their skin as clothing. If I say what I mean, it works better. He does that in the beginning. And he tells them that one day there will be a rescuer. And as my children's Bible, we're reading, it's from the biggest story, which Kevin DeYoung is the author and it's the gospel. But he talks about Jesus as the snake crusher. Because in Genesis, it talks about the son of man who will crush the head of the serpent when it strikes his heel. That's in creation. Literally, the moment we broke everything, God's grace was sufficient for us. And he provided in that providential, faithful love. Exodus, 
God's faithful love didn't wipe them off the face of the planet when they were whiny bums. Moses got ticked. Do you know why Moses never entered the promised land? Because he got mad at the Israelites and he whacked a rock instead of just telling water to come out like God had said. The man was frustrated with God's people and he missed out on the promised land. God's faithful love endures forever. All of that in history leads to this point today where we know what has happened in the past. And here's your newsflash. We also know what happens in the future. God's faithful love doesn't stop then. It has not stopped now. And it will not stop in the future. It endures forever. Not for a couple hours. Not for a couple weeks. Not even for a couple years. A couple decades. Forever. His covenantal love is there forever. And because of that, God's provision reminds us of how astoundingly blessed we are. God's provision reminds us how astoundingly blessed we are. Because God's given us all of this through history to show us exactly who he is and what he's done for us. But God's not done yet. Verse 23, he remembered us in our humiliation. His faithful love endures forever. He rescued us from our foes. His faithful love endures forever. He gives food to every creature. His faithful love endures forever. As I said before, we don't deserve it. Grace is unmerited favor. It's given in hindsight? No. It's given introspectively? I thought about it and they deserve it? No. It's completely undeserved and it's given freely, but it carries the greatest cost. In fact, when we look at Isaiah 6, we see holy, holy, holy. But in that vision, do you know how it all starts? Isaiah sees God. And his first words were like, whoa. No. His first words are, I'm dead. There's no hope for me because I've seen a holy God. And I'm a sinful man who lives among sinful people. Isaiah 6 tells us that a holy God plus us equals I'm dead. The Israelites, you know why God quit talking to them from the mountain? They're like, God, you've made us soil our man dresses, and we'd prefer you never do this again. And what did God do? He listened to his people. And it said Moses goes up the mountain to receive the commandments. A holy God has to make a way. And it's that his said, as I mentioned it earlier, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Let me just read you this snippet from Sally Lloyd-Jones. She said, you see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And though they would forget him and run from him deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him. Lost children yearning for their home. And his love doesn't leave us there. People look at theology and they have issues. There's this fun loaded term called predestination. Okay, we're going to go there. You know why? Because if God didn't do something for you, you could not know him. Scripture tells us no one seeks God. No, not one. God had to move first. 
or you would not know him, you would not seek him, and you would have no hope. Do you know that's why it's good news? Because it brings life, it brings fullness, and it brings hope. And people will throw it out and say the presence of pain, suffering, all of this defines God's love. It can't be real love. No. Pain and suffering doesn't negate God's goodness. Instead, his presence is what carries his people through it. It becomes something that defines us and makes us who we are because his steadfast love endures forever. And in Romans, as Paul said, the spirit we receive doesn't make us slaves living in fear again. Rather, the spirit brought about our adoption. And so by that adoption, by Christ, we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. Going from someone who God could not be around because of our sin to someone who's adopted and son, adopted and a daughter, That's love that doesn't fail. It's steadfast love that endures forever. The thing is, God's love, it demands a response. That's our closing point. God's faithful love from beginning to end demands a response. God initiated everything. He moved. In fact, his spirit has to move in your heart before you have a chance. That's why we believe it matters that people hear the word of the Lord working in our hearts But I'm also one of those theological mutts. It's not just about God's choosing. He doesn't force me to love him, but he moves in my heart to give me the chance. And a quote that I used to wrongly attribute to Dietrich Bonhoeffer became my theological pen. How can man presume to choose God if God did not first choose man? It acknowledges both and. Because pretty much all of theology is both and. If we pigeonhole one or the other, we miss the truth. God had to choose me. But he left it up to me to follow. Because you look at Jesus. Did he tell people, you will follow me? How did he call them? Follow me. He did not force anyone. He asked, enter into relationship. And that's what a God who loves does. He calls us to himself. And he calls us so that we can know the fullness of his love And the response to that is what we're going to do. This week, I want to challenge you. Take time each day to dwell on the faithful love of God. Don't just let this be, man, Matt's excited, he's passionate, it was great. It has to be something that soaks in because what we talk about on Sunday means nothing if it doesn't matter on Monday. Do you see what I'm saying? So Monday... Read Psalm 136. You don't have to read all 26 verses. Heck, you could even cheat like I did this week and just read the first part and then the last part at the end. Or maybe you need all 26 repetitions of his faithful love endures forever because that's where you are. Take the time to see that. See the covenant that God has made with his people and the fact that he will not stop loving his children. No matter how far away we run, no matter what we do, God's heart yearns for his children. It it yearns for that relationship. You know why? Because he gave his son in your place so that you would not be condemned for the debt you owe, but given life. That is the gospel in its fullness. Without an understanding of sin, without an understanding of where we've messed up, 
The sacrifice of Christ doesn't make sense. And in fact, it still doesn't make sense. I'm a dad. I love you guys. You're my church family. But if it came down to choosing, someone said I could pick one of my kids versus you. I'm sorry. I'm going to tell you where I'm going to pick. I love you. I'll see you on the other side. I can't fathom a love so deep that it would choose me over his son. Take a minute and bask in that. That is the steadfast love of our Lord. He chose you over the life of his only son so that by his son's death in your place, you could become the righteousness of God in him. Gospel on that shell from Corinthians. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Take some time. Remember, reflect on the said of God, his faithful love this week. Because the more you hear it, read it, and soak it in, the more likely you and I are to believe it and live from a place like we actually believe it. Because God loves you. God chose you. And he chose his son to die in your place. His only, only, only request, Romans tells us, how will I be saved? Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that God raised Jesus from the dead and you will be saved. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for your steadfast love that endures forever. Thank you for the fact that you loved us more than the life of your son and that instead of treating us as we deserve, you gave us everything by letting him die in our place. Thank you for covering us and our sin with that blood and sending your son away as the scapegoat on our behalf so that we could become your righteousness. This morning, this week, remind us of your love. Remind us that you are faithful when we are not. Remind us that we need you so desperately that there's no other place we should start than the fact that your steadfast love endures forever. Brand it across our hearts and help us to actually know it and to live from it this week. It's in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.